Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. I am joined, as usual, by my great friend, Dara O'Carney, right on the heels of back-to-back Malta Poker Festival and Dublin Poker Festivals. Dara, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. This, week's feel, this week feels kind of like the, the, the calm between the two storms because uh, coming off the back of playing pretty much solidly live for a very long time, you know, Prague leading into the Norwegians, leading into the Tallinn, leading into the Irish Open, leading into the Dublin Poker Festival, and we have UKIPT Dublin um, next week. But uh, this week has been sort of like play a bit online and catch up on the other stuff. Yeah, very much feeling the same way, trying to make a bit of content, this show included. We're busily trying to put together the next episode of the chip race. And of course, we have riding commitments and you've coaching commitments and all that good stuff, too. Yeah, it is a bit of a struggle. I was actually talking to our boss today saying how hard it was just on the off chance that we don't get all our content made at some point in the near future. I wanted to make sure he knows that we're still getting it all made now, even though we're playing ridiculous amounts of live poker. But anyway, both of those live festivals you mentioned there, the, the Malta Poker Festival that I was at and the Dublin Poker Festival, both sponsored or, or, or sponsored slash powered uh, by Unibet. Uh, looking at Unibet objectively, Dara, for a moment, why do you feel it was important for us to be back in the mix on the live poker streets? Well, I think the Unibet approach to live poker has always been sort of a very grassroots up uh, approach where, you know, we, we, we don't put on high rollers and we don't put on uh, even big buy-in tournaments. It's always very much aimed at sort of recreational, grassroots recreational players. Now, unfortunately, the Unibet Opens, we haven't been able to run them the last couple of years with the pandemic. But we have what we have done is we've partnered up with very good existing festivals like Malta, like Dublin. And um, that just sort of creates the, sends out the message that Unibet is still very much committed to grassroots live poker, um, which I think is very important to Unibet's mission in general um, to sort of make poker more fun. Um, the way you make poker more fun is you get more players in at the, at, at the recreational level and, and and you run these big recreational events. It, uh, you know, we were both at the Dublin Poker Festival last week. There were very, very few pros there. Uh, the fields were 99.9% recreational and um, that, that gives it a special atmosphere, I think. Yeah, I don't even count as a pro anymore. I'm just a washed up content creator. I definitely so. wasn't counting you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, I did attend both festivals. You obviously did the full stint, the two weeks in Dublin. There was a sort of a week of Malta Poker Festival and a week of um, Malta Poker Festival and week of Dublin Poker Festival overlapping. And I tried to do sort of a week of each. Uh, I attended the Malta Poker Festival. Both were a great success. Yvonne Montilegre, who was obviously a, a guest on the last episode of the Chip Race, she knocked it out of the park, it's got to be said, with the help of our good pal Unibet DSO's Alex Henry. The main event structure, which was Alex's structure, was really, really good, which is sort of something that was on show as well in the European Thief Stacks and a topic I want to cover now, if you don't mind. Derek, you won the inaugural European Deep Stacks, I want to say, over a decade ago. It has what some might call a gimmicky structure. You start a thousand big blinds deep, but I actually really like it. And more so even because they add in these weird little in-betweeny levels. Like there's a 1,500 3.5K level and a 3.5K 7K level. And those levels with the, the, the 15 3.5s and 3.5s are, are there all the way through whenever that, you know, is potentially it should go 3, 6, 4, 8. They stick that one in. So I thought, well, you know, a lot of tournaments these days 
almost like they're chopping out levels, like where there was always a kind of a clean 10 levels between big blind 100, big blind 1,000, and again, big blind 1,000 to big blind 10,000. We're finding more and more like there's only eight levels in there. And this tournament actually had 12 levels in there. So there's an awful lot more play. And I just thought, well, that's allowing these tournaments to stay 40 big blinds deep all the way through. We noticed that. So do you think players appreciate that? And, and do you think that's something that maybe other people should adopt? Uh, just judging from the the reaction, I think players really appreciate it. I mean, we had people like Annette O'Carroll saying that she thought it's a much better tournament than the Irish Open, for example. You, you talked about the structure there, and you know, you, you used the word gimmicky, and it was kind of a gimmick in the start. You know, structures were getting deeper and deeper. The EPT had just gone up to thirty k, I think, and. The, the, the gimmick of the first European deep stack was, well, well there, there's no deeper stack tournament than this. You know, we started at big blind, I think 2550, actually. So uh, we actually started 2000 blinds deep in the first <laughs> year. And it was it was a weird tournament in the sense that like the early levels were almost meaningless. And in fact, I think at the end of day one, we might have been at the 150, 300 level. So if you had a starting stack, um, you, you still had 300 big blinds. Wow. <laughs> It was a very strange tournament, and I think afterwards the organizers thought, "Okay, that's just a bit too weird." It took it took uh, four long days to play down a field of about 180 uh, to 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 a winner. Or actually, it was a five way chop. I I was officially awarded the title as the chip leader, but um, but it was a five way chop. So we actually only played down to five. Over the years, then the structure kind of changed a bit. Uh, they, they 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 took out some levels. They took out all those early meaningless levels with the the antis with no antis, etc. And what happened was the tournament turned into something different. It it was still ver- people were very very slow to bust, and you might not think about this uh, if you don't think about this too deeply. You might think, well, that's good. But the problem with if people don't bust fairly early in a tournament, it just means the blinds constantly rise, and and you get to a point where actually this deep stack is now very shallow. So you had this weird back to front tournament for a while, where the early levels were just ridiculously deep. Um, you know, you were still a thousand blinds deep, but. By the time you got to the money, it was an average stack of eight, 10, 12 big blinds, something like that. And by the time you got down to the final table, it was it was six big blinds. So there was a couple of years of that, and it was a very strange tournament. And everybody, the, the, the phrase that came to mind was sort of back to front. Um, mm. There was too much play at the start, not enough play at the end. Now, the organizers have addressed that by adding all of these extra levels, as you mentioned. And now, actually, it's, it's, it's probably the best structure uh, in the world, <laughs> maybe outside the WSP main event. Uh, um, it, it, it's a phenomenal good structure. Recreations love good structures um, because, you know, they can play around a bit. Now, one other thing which has changed in the last few years is it became a re-entry. And once a tournament becomes a re-entry, that changes things too because now people are le- much less worried about their tournament life. They can just go off and buy, you know, okay, now they're only getting 200 big blinds if they buy in, but uh, <laughs> but it's but but it's still very deep. So, you, you got people gambling early. Um, you know, I saw two, two guys on my table get it in with flush draws uh, at an early level. And there were lots of early bust outs. So again, that, that kind of keeps this, the average stack moving up as well. Um, so I actually think now the structure is pretty much perfect. I don't think they need to make any more changes to it. And I do think it is something that recreations really appreciate. Uh, you, you might think, well, they don't like the idea of having to play so long uh, to uh, and 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 maybe not cash, but 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 the reality is, you know, recreations are there for sort of the overall tournament experience. And even if the most plus EV thing to do in most tournaments is to max late reg and take get your twelve big blinds to try to spin them, recreations never want to do that because it's just not a good experience when they bust ten minutes later. 
Yeah, well said. And I second absolutely everything you said. I I did sort of look at the thousand bigs and go, oh, this is a bit gimmicky. But what's sort of perfect is like you could have a little sleep in. You could kind of leave the first three or four levels alone by 250 bigs after two hours. And then an amazing structure with all these extra levels added in. And it really did mean that I don't think at any point it dropped below 42 big blind average, which is amazing. As you said, you're, you're used to these days, even in a very good structure to end up with a 30 big blind average or less on the final table and often a lot worse than that. So no, it was fantastic. The one other story that sort of emerged from the Malta Poker Festival and Dublin Poker Festival combined was the story of the turnout of women in both of these festivals in fact with these tournaments uh while these tournaments were on there was a sort of a conversation breaking out in the twitter sphere about the game's failure to attract more women to the felt i felt a little bit over those two weeks as though i was living in a parallel universe a very nice parallel universe it must be said where it was two to three women on every single table but of course i'm far too sample size aware to realize that that's not actually reflective of the general world and uh i was just very fortunate to be at festivals that seem to be you know scratching the uh the, the itch or you know dr driving women to them which is obviously what we want to see more and more uh, before i detail a few of the positives regarding women at these two festivals i want to say that i think sometimes there's a tension here i think sometimes we go about discussing this subject in a bit of a wonky way a couple of days ago my editor at vso news who's also your editor dara where i write most of my articles he asked me to write on the issues outlined by this conversation in the community on women in poker and i said to him that i thought it was maybe more time for listening rather than mansplaining and i'd rather just write a very cool story in fact about two great female players in ireland who had two great results or actually two, three great results between the two of them and deserved a good chunk of coverage uh he was very happy for me to do that but i felt as though even by taking that viewpoint there was an att attention there as well because well, at one level, I was maybe doing the right thing by just giving coverage to the deserved people. There is an other impulse to be an ally in this situation as a man who wants to see more women in poker. And then I did wonder if, you know, by not voicing my opinions on maybe what could be done, was I letting down the side at some level too? So I, I was interested to know what you think about the tension I'm describing. Yeah, it's definitely a tension that I've sort of become aware of. I think maybe at the start when when this topic tended to come up, I tend to just naively weigh in. And uh, but as you said, the, 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 there is always the danger that you're that that you're mansplaining or or or, or overstepping in in certain areas. Um, and also, you're not really talking from direct experience. I mean, you might be a witness to some horrible behavior at the table, but you don't really know what it feels like to be on yeah. the receiving end of it. Um, so. I've actually had this conversation with our our very good friend Jen Shahadi, and I said that, I said that like one of, one of the things which tends to hold me back is that every time a man does weigh into these arguments, uh, he can either apart aside from getting accused of mansplaining, he can also get accused of white knighting. Mm. Um, and her response to that was, well, if if you're the type of person who's genuinely concerned about the issues, and you know you you have an established track record of of you know sticking up for women or speaking out on 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 women's issues no no woman will actually think that even if you know some guys might throw that charge at you but if they do so what because it's a it's it's a false charge so i thought that was an interesting point that it's you you, you don't want to be the guy who just goes like yeah yeah for women every time this comes up um but does pretty much does nothing else the rest of the time i think w within the context of the broader conversation it is very interesting to me that 
at least for the first time that I've been aware, some very prominent women have come out and talked openly about pretty horrendous sexual harassment they've endured at the table. Now, there is a culture in poker where a lot of men actually believe, seem to genuinely believe that this just doesn't exist. Now, I really wonder what, under what rock they've been playing most of their poker because uh, we've all witnessed fairly horrendous things. But I think what it is is that the, the, the poker world has different norms. So stuff which would be regarded as outrageous and genuine harassment in almost any other field is kind of brushed off as well. That's just banter in poker, um, and it clearly isn't when it's a, when it's it's a minority group that's on the receiving end, and it makes them very very um, uh, sensitive and vulnerable. So, um, to, to, to come back to your topic, I think we should obviously try to spotlight women as much as possible their achievements, and um, you know we on the show do that. Like the Chip Race has an unofficial policy of trying to trying to make it about twenty five percent female guests. Now, given that's at least five times as much as the female representation in poker, but we're sort of aiming for the world that we that we would like rather than the the the, the current world we have. Um, you know, we don't beat the drum about that because it's just it's just a sort of thing that we do to try and equalize the gender balance imbalance. But but I but I do think other podcasts could maybe take a take a string from our bow as well. Like I do look at some podcasts and I look at their guest list and it's very hard to find even one female. And you know, that, 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 that can't be right either. Uh, whatever about it, you could say, well, we don't want to overrepresent them. You definitely don't want to underrepresent them. I also think that the type of women that poker attracts tend to be very strong women who can stand up for themselves. And that in itself can kind of create the narrative. Well, you know, women, women can give as good as they get. And, you know, we don't, we don't have to uh, mollycoddle them or, 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 or do anything for them, but we are only seeing the women who are able to endure what the poker world shows at them, shows at them. We don't, we're not aware of the countless other women who, who, who might want to play, um, but don't. And you see this discrepancy between live and online, far more women play online than play live. And that's because they don't have to deal with, with, with bad men behaving badly at the table. Um, and I think that's, that's a message to, to, to take away too. Um, I was amazed by the numbers in Malta, I have to say. Yvonne is obviously doing something amazing there, and I'm going to be actually interested to hear what you have to say on, 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 on what you think those reasons are. Yeah, well, she sort of describes a secret sauce that's, you know, well, first and foremost, first and foremost includes uh, reaching out to all the women's groups. There are various women's communities and advocacy groups out there, and she pretty much reached out to all of them and sort of makes them feel like it's going to be a very female friendly environment. And she really wants them to be out there and she's putting on, you know, extra events just for them, too. And that was very apparent. Uh, I think maybe four or five different groups. There was patches uh, fr fr from various different groups there and you know that was obviously a big part of why the numbers were so large she also uh did female only satellites to the main event which i thought was a very clever innovation as well that sort of ensured that the liquidity stayed within the female pool obviously some of them were going to lose in the satellite but at least you know a woman would ultimately emerge now you know obviously in, a, in an open field satellite a woman could emerge and take all the lads money and that would be fine too but it, it was a way to sort of guarantee good representation there which i thought was was very interesting and maybe also created satellites that were more appealing to women in the first place to hop into so again kudos on that idea um the other thing i suppose is just like you know Yvonne, Yvonne is not somebody to be trifled with. You know, I've I've been on the receiving end of uh, tongue lashing once or twice from Yvonne over the years, and you know, you're just she, she's an intimidating presence, and I think that sort of sets the tone in a way for her festivals. Like you know, floor staff were instructed to take absolutely no shit if there was any 
you know, obnoxious, misogynistic comment, people were going to get penalties very quickly. Um, and there was just a general vibe at the table. And I think that sort of attitude creates a general vibe at the table where, you know, the other men at the table will shame people out of horrible behavior too. And, you know, that's sort of a, a, a gentle way to sort of address bad behavior because some people will only do shitty things if they think, well, people are responding positively to this shitty thing I'm going to say or whatever. And actually they'll keep their fucking mouth shut if, you know, everybody around them will go, what the fuck did you say that for? Or what, you know, the, the, the minute they get negative feedback, they'll re- immediately go back into their box and, and it will shame that kind of behavior out of the few people who might still do it. And I think that's sort of a healthy environment to be sitting in too. But I also just think maybe Yvonne has earned this over a lot of years. You know, she has beat this drum for many years about her former work on the Malta Poker, uh, uh, Battle of Malta, and now at the Malta Poker Festival um, about trying to champion women in poker. And I think that just results now in somebody who for a decade has, has created this space that women feel particularly comfortable in. It was also very clear that uh, while there was 30% of women in the fields in general, 20% in the main event also, and this is a bit more anecdotal, but when I was in the cash game room, as I was quite a, a few times, uh, and, and that cash game room might have maybe 100 people in it at any one time, there was absolutely two women per table I could see throughout and, and often more. So whatever she's doing, it's working. And, and I suppose that segues us nicely then to the Dublin Poker Festival, where, of course, Sarah, you and I saw women basically crushed this festival. It was wonderful to see. First and foremost, Willow Connolly won the Irish Seniors Championship and in doing so took home a trophy, which is actually named after her mom, Jenny Hegarty, who, of course, is the 2001, I want to say, uh, Irish Poker Open champion. Uh, Jenny was a absolute you know champion uh she, she came second in the irish open i think in 1999 she regularly won the cash leagues and all these various different things in her local casino and uh, yeah a bit of an irish legend so for willow to win the trophy and get to bring a trophy with her mammy's name on it and put it on the mantelpiece i think is a special one what do you think there yeah it definitely was uh, i mean willow is one of the great characters she's she's the grand old dame of irish poker she's been around forever um she's she's always in the mix uh, she plays very much against type she's a very aggressive player and has always done very well and more than able to hold her own at, at the table also it has to be said from a great poker family her immediate family like her husband Eamon plays mm. uh, her sons all play or deal um, the, poker is basically ingrained into that family they are one of Ireland's great poker families um, just returning briefly to Malta I did enjoy the conversation and the sort of bewilderment of men as to why it was 30% at the Malta Poker Festival and I had to chuckle when the most common reason being offered was like, oh, well, it was a nice place to go. As as if somehow women per, women have a greater preference for nice weather than men. And that, w- and that would be the deciding factor. I mean, Malta is very much a poor man's Monte Carlo. And I don't think there were too many females in attendance at Monte Carlo, certainly nothing like 30%. So, the, so trying to brush it under the carpet of like, oh, well, it's just because they like to go out and get a bit of sun. Um, is, is, that's, that's, that just diminishes Yvonne's incredible achievement. And it is an incredible achievement. Also, to add to that, there's no chance any. They were all pale skinned sitting in the casino like the rest of us. They're playing. Of course, of course they're poker there. women. They're poker women. You know, it's <laughs> not. Uh, in fact, most of them probably have, have, have had more experience of playing online. So they have uh, they, they, yeah. they have even more reason to be pale than their than their uh, than their male counterparts and to fear the fear the sun. 
Absolutely. Well, Dara, in my article, I listed a few good stats, actually, I suppose, with regard to Irish poker and women. Uh, the first one was that uh, it was won, uh, the Irish Poker Open was won on four occasions in its first 21 years by women. Um, is there something different culturally to how women's participation is perceived in the game in Ireland? Yeah, there's, there absolutely is. There's a long tradition uh, of women playing card games and other competitive things in Ireland, which doesn't exist in other countries. In other countries, you know, the women made the sandwiches, they set up the they set up the table, and then the men played. But I I recently read uh, two books written by my aunts from about their childhood. They grew up in Ireland in the 1930s and 1940s, so it's a very distant age. And back then, centre point of sort of the social life for people in the country was a was a thing they called the gamble. And the gamble was basically where a bunch of neighbors would congregate on one house, which would be set up and people would play. But it was men and women who played. Um, and, and the most popular game was, was a game called 25, which is a partner game. So usually men and women partnered up. So I think there's always been a tradition in Ireland that women women play and, and, and don't just watch or, 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 or do the other stuff. And that, that has kind of transferred into poker. Now, poker presents some unique difficulties in that obviously... Um, first of all, you need money to enter a poker tournament, and and um, a lot of the time, women don't. You know, they they might be a bit more risk averse with their money, so they might not want to stump up too much. So they tend to be underrepresented in the big buy-in tournaments. But in but at the smaller buy-in tournaments, like you had at the Dublin Poker Festival, um, there's no reason for them not to show up. The other thing is obviously women still in this day and age bear the brunt of of child child rearing. So you don't tend to see that many women between the age of let's say twenty and forty. But once you go above that um you know you see lots of lo, lo, lots of women and you know we saw that at the poker festival willow who you mentioned taking down the seniors and eto carroll who was in the chop for the main event and also won a side event and they're both of that demographic that you know they've raised their kids and and and, and now they're able to play yeah absolutely um I agree with you. I think there is something maybe different about Ireland to other places. I I learned cards from my nan sitting out in her balcony with her sleeves rolled up, trying to get a little bit of sun while we played a game that I'm pretty sure was like a version of gin rummy. That was the first game I remember learning how to yeah, play. Yeah, there was a very popular game called gin, which was basically a two-person gin rummy, I think. Uh, yeah. Which I also learned from my nan. I, I learned most of the games uh not poker though she didn't teach me poker but most most of the other games i learned from my from my granny and um that generate even that generation and, and you know you're going back to people who were born uh, my granny was born at the start of the 20th century but even even that generation very much participated yeah, absolutely. I, I did actually learn draw poker from my nan as well. So she, I, I, she was the type of person who wouldn't have surprised me. Now down the bingo hall or the, you know, down the clubs, would have managed to get herself into a game once in a while and probably took a few bob out of them. But anyway, yeah. You, actually, before we move on, you, you, did, you did mention the bingo hall there, and that that might not seem relevant, but but I think another thing that is relevant in Ireland specifically is there isn't the same negative connotations around gambling um, as mm. there is in other countries. There are certain other countries that as soon as you mention anything to do with gambling, everybody kind of goes, "Oh, that's that's a that's a problem person." But in Ireland, there was a there was a tradition of you know the bingo hall, uh, often run by the church, a way of an unofficial <laughs> way of fundraising, and and all the women would go along and play bingo, and and you know the men, the men would go and bet on bet, bet on on horse races and just ga gambling was generally seen as, as as not a negative in Ireland as something which is good entertainment and I think that also makes it easier to sell poker in Ireland yeah great points well another regular on the Irish poker scene Trina Sheeran chopped the big two-day side event with John Farrell Trina I know is mostly a cash game player but she obviously has a few tournament skills 
on show as well. So well done to her. And then last but not least, the lady you just mentioned a moment ago, Dara, I have to talk a little bit more about our good pal and, of course, former special guest of the show, Annette O'Carroll. She won the side event on Friday, as you mentioned, and then on Sunday chopped the main event with Jamie Flynn, Sean Morales and our good pal Dara Davey. As I mentioned, I wrote about Annette's performance in my piece and VSO, but I know you actually go even further back with Annette. I've known her for a lot of years, but you've known her for a few more. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to know this absolute, you know, lioness of the of the Irish poker scene. Yeah, when I was writing my piece, I wanted to include a few stories about Annette to kind of give a flavor for her, but I also had to be careful that she wouldn't <laughs> she wouldn't give me a box the next time she sees me. Uh, so there were some of the stories I thought these are great stories, but I can't possibly put them in. But one story <laughs> I did put in was how was how, the first time we met. And the first time we met was in 2009 in City West at, at a side event. It was a 300 side event and we both got to the final table. And um, that, this is the first time I'd seen her. And our very good friend, Fergal Nealon, uh, the man now doing amazing work with Rapid Response Ukraine, he kind of pulled me aside at the break and he said, listen, Doak, um, don't be fooled now by that, that owl one pretending she has no idea what she's doing. She she hangs around with us down in Sligo. She, she, she soaks in all the strass. She's always asking us about three bet ranges and, and all the rest of it. So... Uh, she absolutely knows what she's doing. I mean, to be honest, I'd already kind of formed this conclusion anyway. I mean, Annette had a huge stack and she was just putting everybody in the bin. Um, and I decided the best way to do this was to let her knock everybody out and just <laughs> stay out of her way, um, which is a strategy I've used a few times in my career uh, since. But this, I think this was the first time I did. And I got heads up with like a massive chip deficit and was hoping to get lucky, but didn't get lucky. Uh, she she won, which she which she constantly reminds me of every time she meets me as well. That the first time we ever met, she beat me heads up. That um, I didn't have you in a barrel, Mister O'Carney, and I knocked shades of shite out of you. <laughs> yeah, but but she is great fun, and, and you know we, we've we've seen her at events down the years, and <laughs> she always tries to sell this image of like the, the the granny who doesn't really know what she's doing, and it's just it's such absolute horse shit. It's 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 just ludicrous. I mean, there are other old people that do it, but she does it like to a ridiculous. She has absolutely no shame on this stuff. She's constantly coming with the poor mouth that she that that that, that they're all picking her, and she's usually the most aggressive player at the table. Um, really? so it's it's it, it it is pretty funny. I mean, at the time I met her the big female phenomenon on the on the on the world stage actually was Annette Oberstadt uh, Annette 15 as she was known because that was her screen name apparently she started playing when she was 15 um but we used to say that we had our own Annette 75 um <laughs> and, and that she was even more ferocious and you know in more recent years she, she's also our own our own AOC she's very much uh leading the cause for women being treated with respect in poker as well but she, but she's the kind of player she's never really played too much on the whole female thing um you know she'll she, she'll go after the women at the table just as aggressive as she'll go after the men so she, she's she's very much a positive role model in, in the sense of like she's just a poker player first and foremost yeah she really is well look next up wsop prep the world series starts in just two short weeks how is it already that time of year again i don't know how um and it's around this time of year i guess i anyway start making promises to myself to eat better and do a little bit of running because you know Dara sometimes makes me run when we're out there and uh, I'm heading out for the last fortnight of the series so that gives me a little bit more time to prep myself Dara you're going out for three weeks that means you're going out in about five weeks time mm -hmm. we had a pretty successful campaign it must be said last time out we made that last minute dash out to the series I had four deep runs including the main and you of course had four caches including a final table 
What does your WSOP prep look like? Is it weighted towards study or is it a sort of even mix between study and then health slash mental game stuff? It kind of depends where I am. Like a lot of years I've been sort of um, in, in great shape. So it, I, it's just been a case of ramping up the study. Uh, for example, for one year, I remember I watched and rewatched uh, Zach Galwood's um video series on tells and i found that incredibly useful in fact some of the players in the videos actually popped up at my tables in america because he's obviously <laughs> using american examples so that was particularly useful and i tend to orient my study towards rather than the technical stuff um sort of trying to think about how you exploit live players um rather than, you know, what's the optimal strategy, 100 big blinds, low jack versus button or whatever. Um, at the moment, I am doing some preparation as well. I'm, I'm, I'm working with a study partner who's also going to be at the WSOP and going through, focusing mainly on ICM, it has to be said, because I think that's probably where the, where, where the biggest immediate gains are made, hmm. um, but also some short stack stuff. Uh, but this year for me, the most of the preparation is going to be oriented towards um, physical preparation, because with all the live poker that's happened in the last two months, I have sort of let that hard slide i've got out to do runs as, as well as like as much as i can but like with the best one in the world for example last week at the dublin poker festival i only got out for two short runs so um I, i'll be using the period between uh, the uk ipt uh, which ends at the end of next week and when i head to the states exactly a month later to sort of focus on just getting into a good routine of uh, running um meditating eating well and uh and doing all that stuff and calling me fat that's normally part of your preparation well you're a, you're you're an inspiration to me in other ways it's a sort of like <laughs> don't, don't be like lapping <laughs> well look another subject that comes up around this time of year is markup I, I saw a tweet just the other day with sean deep threatening to break out his markup police costume i think we all uh, don't want to see that again but anyway dara people like to buy action from players willing to sell a bit of action at the series that tends to be the sort of big time year for buying action it's obviously a great opportunity to have an interest if you're not going yourself or if you are going and you just want more action but markup can be a thorny subject at the best of times there are three things actually i want i've written down three things here on my notes that i want to dispel uh, notions i want to dispel before i have you weigh in on your thoughts dara the first is how people sometimes relate markup to expenses so mm. say a, a player justifies his markup on the basis of him having to fly to vegas and eat some food and stay in a hotel and, and that sort of thing and that is sort of inbuilt into his offer for me that's just nonsense of course the player has expenses but buying his action should never be part of that it should be decoupled from that aspect of it it's a straight business transaction on the tournament itself the player should guesstimate his roi and then share some of the perceived edge with the backer that sort of brings me to the second thing which is that a player doesn't have to share his ROI right down the middle with the backer. That's something I actually used to think in my yeah. early days of selling action. Uh, for example, if a player has maybe a 20% expectation, it's probably reasonable enough to sell at 1.1 and, and, and split the edge. But if a player has a 70% expectation in something, I don't think that means they should have to sell at 1.35. I think something around 1.5 in that scenario is, is pretty fine. A backer who is getting a quick turnaround, let's be honest, on a plus EV proper proposition in poker doesn't deserve half your edge if your edge is very large uh, finally the third thing i have noted down here is selling action is essentially a market and sometimes players 
maybe because they're famous or maybe because they network well, will get markups that are not justified by their edge. It's fine that this happens so long as the transaction, in my view, is transparent, but it's also fine to highlight such cases. So poker doesn't have a sort of a, a board or a, a regulations kind of you know thing for such situations. All we really have is public opinion to maybe coerce and shame players into not taking the piss sometimes. So with those in mind, do you agree with what I said there, Dara? And would you add anything? I largely agree with you. I'll, I'll push back to, on, on, on two minor points. First of all, the idea that it, it should never be related to expenses. I think when you sometimes you have recreational players playing, for example, and you know, they probably actually have a negative edge, but you know, you can't really expect them to sell at 0 0.9 or 0 0.8. It's usually a case that they're going around to their mates and their mates are, it's it's it's, it's kind of a social thing. The, the, the mates aren't viewing it as an investment. We as poker players, professional poker players, we would view pretty much everything we do, it has to be plus EV. And therefore we're looking at it through that particular frame of, well, what's their edge and what are they offering? But, you know, if 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 if, if Johnny from Valley the Hub wants to go over and play the, the World Series main event, then the only way he can afford it is to sell to all his friends. I don't think his friends are going to be too worried trying to work out what his ROI is. And, you know, if he go and if he does go to them, say, look, I, I need to charge a little bit extra because I have all these expenses, I think they would be quite sympathetic to that as well. So I think there is a difference between the, let's say, the recreational view of this and the, the professional view. Um, the, the, the second thing I would say is that just on the markup issue and, and, and the markup police, um, I used to be very much of the opinion that I would only sell publicly because I didn't like the idea that only people who have access to professional players have access to a marketplace of potentially plus EV um, investments. I kind of had the idea that, well, everybody, but to be honest, th th there's always so much talk around markup that it just becomes tedious to have to constantly justify mm. your markup to different people who don't know you generally are never going to buy you. Um, it, it just feels like they're just complaining for the sake of complaining. And um, that, that, that becomes so tedious that I pretty much retired now from public selling and, um, uh, I don't sell very much at all these days, but if I do, it's usually a case of a friend comes to me and says, like, oh, uh, can I have a sweat in the in the main event or whatever? And and, and then I will. But it, but I do think it's kind of sad that I, I'm sure there are other players as well who have withdrawn as well, because there's just so much negative talk and publicity around. Oh, this guy's selling at one point two and there's no way he's worth one point two. Um, and, you know, let's let's see your graph. Um, <laughs> Get it's your graph like, out. It's like if you were going to, to, to hire a plumber and you insisted on seeing every single details of from every single client he'd ever had and uh, details of what courses he'd done, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems a bit over the Show top. Show me your last 10 toilets. Exactly, yeah. And, <laughs> I, 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 and often they're coming at it from a very bad perspective. You know, They're looking at a sample size of 20 or something and saying, well, you haven't cashed in your last 20 tournaments, which, by the way, is, is approximately many tournaments I haven't cashed in personally. But that's that's neither here nor there. And they'll go, well, you're obviously crap now. And uh, I, I, and then you'll have other people saying, well, online is, is not the same as live. Or, or other guys will say, oh, he's winning live, but you know the sample size is too small. There's just so much chatter around this that it becomes, to my mind, incredibly tedious. It is weird that it is the one aspect of the poker economy that comes under such heavy scrutiny, players selling pieces themselves in tournaments. You don't see the same level of bitching about rake. You don't see the same level of bitching about salaries in, 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 in poker companies. You don't see the same bitching about how much people are charging for training courses or any of this stuff. It is just this one area where everybody seems like they, they, they feel they have the right to have an opinion. Um, and, you know, while while I completely accept that if people are selling at, at ridiculous markets, which is going to be a rip-off, then people have the right to point that out. Um, 
but it just it's, it seems like this this it's just done to too much to far degree and it actually becomes a negative rather than a positive for the way the market operates in the sense that it tends to drive people to selling privately rather than publicly yeah and i agree with you on the the sort of tire kicking point there's a lot of people who just like kicking tires and uh, and having a go and as you say if they were at least willing to put their money where their mouths are you'd sort of have a bit more time for their opinions but yeah it, it, it can be tea and i'm sure by the way as tedious as it is i'm sure we're in for some of that tedium over the next month it's, it's almost unavoidable this time of year every year it becomes a, a subject matter so um maybe this is a good time to you know the way you can go into twitter and like delete the word markup markup yeah you can make yeah. sure that you get no tweets with the word yeah, I think it. I'll be using more more injudicious use of the of, of the of the mute button as well going forward. <laughs> Very good. Well, finally, guys, before we go, the big news from Unibet since the last show. In fact, we, we almost leaked it. I, I semi-leaked it. I don't know what level of leaking. There was some amount of leaking in the last show, but we were sworn not to leak it because the very next day we knew the news was coming out that the Unibet Open Malta is coming back to um uh the Liefeld, the Unibet Open Malta. Well, no, so the Unibet is coming back to Malta uh, this September, uh, end of September, first couple of days of October. It's very exciting news, I have to say. You know, as you said, Dara, lots of great partnerships, and we love those partnerships, but there's nothing quite like a Unibet Open for a bit of prestige. And it's always a bit fancier in the really five-star hotels and all that good stuff. So really looking forward to that one. Uh, I saw actually top secret but i saw a draft of the schedule and it's actually going to be a really jam-packed schedule loads of side events on it as well so i love seeing that i love a schedule where you know sort of every two or three hours something fires off and people get lots of options satellites by the way guys are already running in the client the unibet client four packages to this event they're 2k packages feeders all week long and then finals on sunday and i swear to you i swear these are dripping with value not just because the saddies themselves are soft but also because I'm pretty dang sure these 2K packages are actually worth about 23 or 2400 in value when you add in all the extras that you will be receiving. It is Unibet's 25th anniversary this year, so I'm expecting a huge players party. Actually, I'm expecting several players parties and a great atmosphere as always. If that wasn't tempting enough, I can say uh, with hand on heart that the weather in Malta, male or female, whether you're a man who likes good weather or a woman who likes good weather, it is the perfect weather that time of year. It's a bit like May where the sun is out, but it's not too hot. Uh, Dara, are you looking forward to the Unibet Open returning? I'm very much looking forward to the Unibet Open re returning. And, um, one thing, Unibet have done such a good job on their live events down the years that I think people sometimes think that everything that happens at an event that has Unibet on the wall has to has 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 to be uh, sorted out by Unibet. I have people coming up to me at the Dublin Poker Festival, claiming complaining about chip colours, uh, complaining about pr 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 pretty much everything about how how hot it was in the room, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> and I, I I was at odds to point that we were partnered with this festival, but we, but it wasn't a Unibet Open. Unibet Opens are different because we do actually take charge of all of those the details. thermostat. The literally, yeah, li literally all those details. Natalie and her team do an amazing job. They, 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 they get the venue. They, they hire all the dealers. They work out the schedule. They work out the chips. They hire all the tours, tournament staff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they do a, they, they do a great job. There was a couple of alarming things there in, in, in what you said. First of all, you started off talking about semi leaks, which uh, that that when you get to sort of our age, that raises some fairly horrible. Above you know, our age. <laughs> Are we in the? Are we finally in the same group age? Is that, is that true? I, th yeah, I think we're both officially middle aged now. So I mean, I might be coming. Don't get me age. wrong; you're in much better nick, and we'll live longer. But I just thought I still get to be a bit younger. I might, I, I might be coming towards the end of middle age, and, and you're sort of tipping into the start of middle age. But um, <laughs> yeah, for for the moment, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. 
I'm hot committed to the idea that we are roughly the same. <laughs> we're age. the same, fair enough. Um, I mean, people often think we're the same person. So if we're the same person, we must be the same age. The other thing I was learning about is, you know, I wish I'd remembered <laughs> we were coming back in Malta before I called it the poor man's Monte Carlo earlier in this section. Malta is an amazing place. It has to be said, a really good place to play. Has a lot of uh, poker actually on the island. Um, a lot of the sites, Unibet included, have offices there. Um, so you have not just players, but also staff, people around poker. And, you know, Malta Poker Festival, Battle of Malta, all these events are famous. Uh, there used to be EPTs in Malta. Um, it is genuinely a great place to play poker. And it, 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 it's, it's good to see Unibet coming back. And it's, it's a very nice hotel. Um, and that's something that Unibet always prioritize. Um, the idea that the recreational player, you want them to have a good experience, even if they don't cash the tournament. Um, and they will, if they come to uh, Unibet Open Malta, they'll have a great experience. Yeah, Monte Carlo is the rich man's Malta. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would call it the rich pricks Malta, but rich yeah, we'll, pricks Malta. We'll, we'll quibble on that. Uh, look, it remains for me now to wish you a good day, sir. We did it in the afternoon. You can still see the sunshine outside. That's unusual. We usually do these at night. Like me out a bit early for this one, David. Yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, that's it from us, guys. Thank you so much. This has been another edition of The Lock-In. Please tune in next week when we will have an episode of The Chip Race as usual.